0: Welcome to Behavior babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Hello, How joining us today we have Dr. Mark Sunberg. Hi, Mark. are you there?
1: Hello, yes, hi, Amanda.
0: I'm here. Oh, I'm so excited. I would like to have us start today by letting our listeners learn a little bit about you if you wouldn't mind giving us an overview of you,
1: okay, certainly. Uh, well, I I think I was fortunate that I was uh, born in Southern Michigan in Battle Creek, which happened to be about 15 miles away from Western Michigan University, and uh, at Western Michigan University was of course the largest behavior analysis program at the time, and uh, I had transferred down to Western as a, a junior from Ferris State College once I became interested in behavior analysis, and Uh, it changed my life. Uh, Entering Western Michigan University was one of the most exciting things I I had done at the time. And uh, also, I was sort of fortunate in that I began working for Jerry Shook at a program called Kalamazoo Valley Multi-Handicap Center. And that was a practicum site for Western's psychology department. All students were required to take a practicum. So at that site, we worked with uh, pretty severely handicapped individuals that were either Living in the Kalamazoo State Hospital, on their way to, or just out of the state hospital, or uh, still within uh, various programs, but uh, it was an intensive one-on-one ABA-style program, beginning in the late 70s and or uh, late 60s and early 70s. That's where I learned behavior analysis really from that environment. Brian Iwata was our consultant. Jack Michael was our consultant. We did uh, uh, an extensive amount of research on verbal behavior as well as a variety of other pro, uh, uh, projects. And that history uh, really kind of set my career. For the pretty much uh, for the rest of my life, I have developed that content and uh, applications from uh, what we learned at Western Michigan University. Jack Michael was a huge influence on me. He was my master's and doctoral uh, advisor and uh, as I said, he came out to the Multi-Handicap Center pretty much once a week for our research meetings, and uh, the original research on the separations of the man, tact, interverbal, and the applications to assessment and intervent, uh, interventions were all pretty much developed there in, in Kalamazoo with that crew. Uh, so that was that was fun. That that gave me what I needed for the rest of my life. And as I said, for the last 40 years, I've been uh, pretty much working on that basic premise of. Uh, Behavior Analysis and Skinner's Analysis of Rural Behavior as powerful tools for working with kids with uh, language delays.
0: You remember when you introduced me to Jack uh, Michael at the conference, one of the AVA conferences?
1: Years um, ago. Yeah,
0: you told him, you told him, Jack, there's someone famous and you have to have a picture with her. And I was like <laughs> blushing and I'm still blushing. And I remember a comment Jack made at that talk, and I know it was one of his last AVAs. Somebody was going back and forth, I think, with Judah um, on whether or not it was a man. And I think Jack said something to the effect of, well, you give it to them, and they take it, they wanted it. If not, they didn't want it. And it was just so...
1: Like, matter of fact.
0: <laughs> like,
1: there you go. Yeah, and I was like, that's
0: it. That's what I thought. Okay, got it. You know, no, was, <laughs> it was fun uh,
1: to connect them all together. Yeah, so. and boy, did we miss Jack because it was always, Jack was always able to, this isn't it, this is it. <laughs> <else>?
0: Black, white. <laughs> okay. That's <Left>, right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. When you were working in the hospitals or in that first setting, what were the age of the clients that you were working with?
1: Our program served from zero to 25, so early infant, early birth, uh, 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 as soon as any kind of issue was identified, then up to 25, And, and it was a public school program, so we worked for the Kalamazoo Valley Intermediate School District, and at the time, Michigan provided services up to 25 years of age uh the the classroom that i i worked in the nursery component first in nineteen seventy four my first uh uh contact with developing disabled children was in the nursery component uh with uh, uh an individual named Tom Zane who was my supervisor uh and I worked in the elementary component with uh jim partington uh and that's where I had met jim and uh Jim and i uh ultimately became the co coordinators of uh the elementary component. But then there was a youth component for uh, the older kids. Nancy Neef was in charge of the youth component during uh, some of those early days. Uh, Terry Page was involved in that uh, as well. Wow, it's like
0: a a who's who of (laughs) behavior analysis.
1: What what made it a who's who was that that, uh, the Western Michigan Psych Department uh, basically had to find theses and dissertations for their master's and Ph.D. students. And Brian set up that at at Western, and that's where his students, Nancy and Terry and uh, Mike Dorsey and the whole collection of of early Brian Iwata research was was run at that center, and and Jerry supported all of that. In fact, Brian said 10 of his first 20 publications were conducted at the Kalamazoo Valley Multi-Handicap Center uh, by those students. So the people that went through Western – pretty much everybody a good number of the people came through the multi-cap program at one time or another uh and it, simply because there was that requirement but it was also a research setting uh so uh, uh again all the verbal behavior research the uh, the community survival stuff that Paige and Neef and iwata did with street crossing and bus riding and laundry skills independent living skills that was all run there uh, so we were all one verbal community and then uh taking classes in the evening. So uh, pretty much most of us all worked full-time, that is Neif and Iwata Page and Partington and Zane. We all worked uh, full-time for Jerry uh, and then took classes at Western in the evening and uh, uh, got ideas for projects to run.
0: Well, and when you say Jerry, you mean Jerry Shook, of course, and... I think that many people who are connected to behavior analysis do know who he is, um, and there's so much to be. We should do. A, I should do a whole episode. I think <laughs> just having everyone yeah. to talk and tell stories of the late great Jerry Shook. Um, but for those who don't know, he did found the Behavior Analyst Certification Board.
1: Yeah, and that um, that grew out of that activity in the in the sense that Jerry uh, basically dealt with 30, 40, 50. Uh, Undergraduate and graduate students every semester came through the program. That is, Every semester he had a whole new group of naive Western Michigan University students who wanted to learn applied behavior analysis, how to work with kids. And Jerry was always working on what do you need to know, what skills do you have to have, got to be competent. And he was very, uh, uh, I want to say rigid. Jerry was very effective. He knew what he wanted out of people. He defined the outcome Uh, we used to have Friday meetings with Jerry every Friday and the first things out of his mouth were always data, data, data. I want to see some data. Show me your data. (laughs) And It was like uh, he was, that's what he was after. And so the BCBA was kind of a natural outgrowth. Once he left the multi-handicap center in 1980, uh, after he graduated, uh, he went to Buffalo and and, uh, began to teach there. But uh, as he worked his way down into Florida, he continued to work on trying to specify what is it that a behavior analyst needs to be competent in what are the skills uh and obviously that morphed into the bcba over a couple of decades a few decades actually um, but uh, yeah many people don't realize that jerry also ran that program for almost a decade all through the 70s uh, he was in charge, basically, of teaching people real applied behavior analysis, the hands-on. You leave the lab, you leave the classroom, uh, the academic classroom. Now you come into a public school classroom, which we were, uh, but it was all designed one-on-one, and you know, with Jerry uh, uh, managing the whole system. Uh, uh, it was quite an experience for people to learn how to do ABA, to learn how to do applied work after having been in the lab. Uh, It was always entertaining to have people that were getting straight A's in in the most difficult experimental classes, and then they'd come in and sit down with the kids, and the kids would eat them alive. Uh, How do you actually (laughs) apply this uh, to some kids spitting at you, throwing stuff, tantruming, and and how do you actually apply reinforcement? That's another repertoire, and... uh, Uh, that's what we taught. Uh, We were taught, and that's what we taught of all our people, all our staff and students and so on as they came through that program.
0: How fortunate, I think, to have such a diverse and immersed experience. And I think that that varies a lot uh, from program to program. Uh, Of course, there's still access to rigorous programs out there and more, I think, than in the 70s and 80s. How do we maintain this level of and inspiration when we have so much much diversity in our teaching? Like, what what do you think is essential in any university program?
1: Well, some of the things that I thought were essential are no longer uh, available, and those were things like animal labs. Uh, We learned an awful lot from the rat and pigeon labs in terms of the basic concepts. Well, those obviously aren't uh, very available anymore. But there are there are other ways of getting access to that in terms of computer-based shaping programs and and so on. But I think that now uh, uh, there are certainly are more programs available for people. There's there's uh, the kind of the larger focus on BCBA uh, type skills and, and uh, using that as as kind of a curriculum for many behavior analysis programs. And that's that's good and bad. And I. I am always concerned that uh, uh, behavior analysis requires more than just applied skills. Uh, if you really want to be a nice, well-rounded behavior analysis, it's important to have a pretty solid conceptual background in terms of understanding the principles, concepts, and being able to use them to analyze any new behavior issue that that may come by. Uh, as well as, uh, to some degree, the experimental foundations uh, of the field. Those are all extremely important. I'd probably come back and say the programs that, that do offer that conceptual foundation along with an applied foundation, I think, are going to take a student further, where you leave, and you're, you leave as a behavior analyst. You're able to analyze behavior in any context, whether it's verbal, nonverbal, positive behavior, negative behavior, that you have that behavior analytic repertoire. And that's hard to get in a in a couple of years in a in a master's program because there's a lot of content there. One of the masters, I mean, there are there are, there are certainly several programs, but uh, uh, as an example of one that I think has been doing it uh, quite well is is the program at California State University Stanislaw, and uh, that Kyle Miguel and Helen Burgess and others around the faculty there, the students. Come through that program and they get uh, both applied experience in terms of working in in applied settings. They get basic behavior analysis, but they also get a a pretty solid conceptual foundation of verbal behavior from uh, concepts from Skinner's about behaviorism. So you learn radical behaviorism, you learn the conceptual foundation of our field, the concepts of our field, and then you run a publishable quality master's thesis, and, and uh, Kyle and his students have, have regularly been putting out six to eight Java JAB, the Analysis of Rural Behavior, high-quality publications every year. Uh, and and the students leave then and are entering into, into PhD programs and have that repertoire that sets them up for the more advanced uh, programs. And there are now several programs, I think uh, Clear Lake with Anna Peters' daughter in Texas, uh, uh, his program, Sarah Lachego's program. Uh, I think, oh, I think is is at Clear Lake and, and Anna Peter's is at Texas Christian, uh, university. Uh, they all, all have good programs like Codwell's program with, uh, The Reeve with Ken Reeve and Sharon Reeve and and Jason Veladescu, uh, that collection, there's about six or seven faculty members that all have a behavioral orientation. And their students, too, are learning the applied skills. They have a clinic right there in their psychology department uh, where our students are able to immediately learn the applied skills. Uh, They do JAB, job quality publications, and a lot of them, uh, their students regularly publish uh, and and they learn verbal behavior and some of the conceptual foundations of the field. Those kind of programs, I think, are now more available. I think uh, uh, certainly social media and the and the, the way publications are done these days, things are happening so fast in terms of uh, we don't have to wait for the journal to arrive in the mail anymore. We see stuff immediately, and that's certainly fun. So as far as, as colleges and opportunities, they've certainly grown, just to tie it back to Western. In 1972, what brought me to Western Michigan University was Psychology Today did a, a special issue on the rise of Skinnerian psychology in American universities, almost as if it was a threat, the rise of Skinnerian psychology. And it really it was kind of threatening that that rat psychology was taking over Freudian psychology and, and all of that. And they listed where was where were the universities? Where was behavior analysis taught? And it was a handful of colleges. I mean, there were maybe uh, 16 colleges or so identified over a 30-year period with, with ending uh, their whole – beginning with Skinner and Keller at Harvard, but but ending saying that – and this was 1972 – Western Michigan University and University of Kansas were now – the hotbeds, they were the places to go. And there were only about five or six other programs, Southern Illinois, University of Washington, uh, Florida State was beginning to get uh, going sunny in New York, State University of New York had a program. So they're very limited, like a handful. And I'm not sure what the number is now, but I'm sure that the, that ABBA has in terms of number of certified programs. uh, I, I really don't even know. I couldn't venture to guess, but I'm sure it's probably close to 100 different programs are certified for providing BCBA certification, at least at that level. Uh, So I think it's all good news in that area is that that there's more available. And certainly the online courses have made behavior analysis available to people who could never access them through the university system. I'm uh, thinking too of parents and practitioners, uh, special ed teachers, and, and others who simply want to learn how to do timeout, how to use overcorrection, how do you do data collection. Uh, there's uh, modules on virtually every topic and behavior analysis now available on somebody's website somewhere.
0: <laughs> somebody's website somewhere, definitely. Well, I feel like that is an incredibly helpful retrospective look at where the programs originated or where some of the strengths came from. And I think it is wonderful to see that there's growth in access to behavior analytic programs. I appreciate, though, for our listeners, especially those who are who are looking to get into a program, your perspective of what what contributes to strength um, and the outcomes. One thing I wanted to ask you today was if you could describe briefly the verbal operants and the difference between them in common language in everyday terms. If we were explaining to a parent of a young child or a classroom teacher, uh, we would really appreciate that.
1: Sure. Well, uh, we can basically start out with saying that you can talk about language as, as speaking and listening. A child's either saying words uh, or they're listening to words. And you know, as we look at children that are language delayed, either or both their speaking skills are are impaired in some way or their listening skills are are impaired. Uh, The speaking skills are often talked about as expressive language. And uh, within behavioral psychology, we often look at a behavior, and we may say the same behavior may be caused by two different things. That is, crying could be caused by a painful stimulus or crying could be caused by wanting to get your way. So the same behavior may have two different reasons why somebody might say it or omit it. And words are the same way. So as the child is learning uh, to be a speaker, learning expressive language, uh, they're learning to say words. Uh, well, they can say cookie when you say cookie, and they can l- repeat a word, and that's certainly a beginning uh, element of, of learning language, learning to echo, repeat uh, other individuals. Uh, but that doesn't take you very far. That is, uh, I can repeat Spanish, but I can't have a conversation in Spanish. So, um, repeating is just one type of a word of of, uh, of being able to say a word. One cause. Uh, another another way of of saying a word is that when you say the word, not because somebody else said it, but because you want that item. So the term manned or "request," I might now say "cookie" because I want a cookie. And that's different than if somebody else says cookie. So we find children with autism who can repeat a word. They can say uh, popcorn when you say popcorn, but when there's no popcorn, they can't ask for one. And that separation of those skills really helps us in assessment because it allows us to say the child can do this, but he can't do that. Ah, but he has to be able to ask for what he wants. Well, we can use the fact that he can echo us to teach him then to say the word when he wants the item. Uh, but he also needs to say that word when he doesn't want the item, when he sees a picture of a cookie. Uh, even though he's not hungry, he needs to be able to identify that that's a cookie and, and not a bagel. Uh, and uh, Skinner calls that the tact, or you might think of that as giving the name of something or labeling things. But the word is the same. But just like the crying, the cause of it is different. I'm crying for different reasons. I'm speaking for different reasons. Uh, eventually, uh, and uh, usually around the same time, if, if somebody says, where's the cookie, the child can find the cookie or identify it as a listener. Uh, they now uh, have that skill. Uh, eventually, things get a little more complicated when the child learns that cookie belongs to a class of other things. It's a type of food. So if I now say something you eat, cookie now is a correct response. I'm not saying cookie because I want it. I don't say cookie because you say cookie. I don't say cookie because I see it. I say cookie because of its connection to the verbal stimulus now, the word cookie, which in a sense substitutes for the actual item of the cookie. And all of these skills uh, are separate at first but become interrelated and dependent on each other as language becomes more complex. But a, a child with autism may have one or two or three of those, or not all the pieces working together or coordinated with each other. And that framework allows us to uh, dissect a language disorder in a manner that will immediately lead to an intervention. It'll tell us exactly what's missing. The child can name things, can touch them, can repeat. But can't ask for, them. and that's a common scenario that we get with kids. They can't mand, they can't request. Their request might be a tantrum or crying. They can't use their words to talk, and that then gives us a direction, gives us direction for a solution, uh, for for intervention. Um, hopefully, maybe that gives uh, a kind of an intro to uh, what Skinner's verbal behavior is about at the very beginning level.
0: The part that I think is going to resonate the most with parents, teachers, behavior analysts is the fact that it's not just a philosophical, you know, approach. It's something that we're going to dissect so that we can immediately intervene and have treatment. And so Mm -hmm. we are looking for outcomes. Again, you have created several assessments and a lot of the approach of teaching these skills have evolved over time could you speak a little bit to the vb map to the assessment that you created
1: sure that basically began uh back in Kalamazoo in the in the 1970s it was it was uh a major theme of our work there and it was also uh my doctoral dissertation part of my doctoral dissertation was uh sorting out the verbal operants and so the vb map basically uh arose out of a need for an assessment tool that assessed all those different functions, that assessed requesting, naming, echoing the conversations and the interverbal, uh, listener skills, that sorted all those differences. Uh, At the time and still currently today, standardized assessments used for children with autism do not do that. That is, they're broken down into expressive receptive categories. And, for example, the expressive one-word vocabulary test assesses labeling only, that is, it's an assessment of tacting. Uh, The Peabody Picture Vocabulary Test Receptive version assesses only the listener repertoire. So most standardized assessments may assess one, two, or three, but none of them assess the man, the tact, the interverbal, the echoic. All of those different pieces uh, are all considered the same thing. So traditional linguistics, lumps together, man, tact, and interverbal, all expressive language. They don't see a functional separation and that's what Skinner has has shown for us. So the the work in the 70s was to develop that assessment tool and just as a a, a quick note is that I started with Joe Spradlin's assessment. That is, Joe Spradlin was the first one to do a verbal operant assessment uh, uh, for children with and adults actually with with, uh, language delays. And it was called the Parsons Language Sample, and and that was the tool, uh, the main tool that I had initially used in my dissertation was Joe Spradlin's verbal operant assessment. Uh, And uh, just a a, a quick note on that, Joe had said that that, uh, not many people had used it, and this was 10 years later, it was 1963 when he had, had done that, and this was like 1975, 76, 77, and Joe had said almost nobody had used that. And I had asked him if I could change some of the items because he developed this for adults in a state hospital. So his manned item was give the patient a cigarette but no lighter and see if he requests a lighter. So that was the <laughs> assessment item. And uh, I asked him if I could change He so I could make any kind of changes. So I modified the the assessment. And over the the next several years, uh, we b- basically expanded and, and developed that uh into the first generation of, of verbal behavior assessment that ultimately became the ABLES in the 1990s uh, and then the VB map uh, in in the 2000s uh, but it's been a 40 year project uh, the, the the current focus now what i' I'm, I'm focusing on is uh, uh, the area of generative learning and now looking at at how kids are acquiring repertoires without direct training without uh, uh immediate reinforcement how do how does an interverbal emerge out of a tact and listener repertoire uh and how how do you uh provide a child with the repertoire to be able to learn that way how do you get free learning how do you teach a child how to learn and there are certain repertoires that once a child has that it generates language on its own bidirectional naming is an example that is at a certain point once a child learns a listener response, that if I can hear somebody uh, identify something, they can they can now uh, call something uh, uh, a microphone, a mic, and I can just hear that as a listener. And uh, in bidirectional naming at a certain point, through echoic mediation, if the child can hear microphone, if they emit an echoic response and say, Mike, echoically, whether overt or, or covertly, it sets up the occasion to learn a listener discrimination and a tact. Uh, and so what we see in bidirectional naming is learning just a listener relation may automatically establish the tact relation and vice versa. Acquiring a tact relation automatically or generates a listener relation because of common elements. And again, that common element is the echoic. If I make the echoic relation It sets up everything we need to get transferred. Uh, It's a little bit more complicated than that, but naming shows us how uh, you get free learning, that acquiring one or two skills collectively can create a new level of learning. So we see at around two years of age there's a burst of language, and that burst is due to a whole collection of generative learning repertoires, some related to equivalence, some related to naming, some related to relational framing, some related to generalized man repertoires, some related to multiple control with verbal and nonverbal stimuli. I know those are all complex kind of topics, but unfortunately that's the level that we're into. Once you get a child that, you know, has a 500-word speaking vocabulary and has an extensive amount of directly trained skills, we we certainly, and all along we are usually working on this, we certainly have to work on uh, providing repertoires that allow the child to learn new repertoires on their own. Uh, for example, problem-solving skills, which involve verbal behavior, in terms of, of both real-world problems and academic problems. Uh, so that's been that's kind of the the, the current direction of of the VB-MAP. Uh, uh, my intent is to have the uh, third edition out in a year or two, something like that. After or Getting field testing now and starting to dig deeper into those kinds of concepts and such. So that's been a lot of fun.
0: It's really exciting to hear that there's again more evolutions uh, of the uh, previous iterations, and that's the thing that's super exciting about behavior analysis. I mean, to me, human behavior, animal behavior, there's always something more to learn <laughs> yeah, and a better that way to <laughs> Oh, Dr. Sundberg, really would love to, you know, thank you for your time and and for having you join today on the call. I know you just mentioned that that's a project you're working on, but I wanted to also give you the opportunity to share any upcoming presentations or publications or just give any shout-outs to anyone if you'd like to do that.
1: Sure. Uh, The CalABA conference is uh, coming up in two weeks, and I'll be presenting this uh, regenerative learning content uh, there. As well as in Austin, the Verbal Behavior Conference uh, will be uh, April 2nd and 3rd in Austin, Texas. And that conference only has six speakers on the agenda, uh, but it's all focused on verbal behavior. And the six speakers are uh, myself, Dave Palmer, Kyle McGill, Anna uh Barb Ash, and Pat McCreevy so uh it should be pretty fun uh this is the third year that we've done this conference and and it's a two-day conference we and the first day we all have a panel where all of us are up uh, up there that panel uh, will be podcast actually and uh that should be kind of fun uh and then of course uh is coming up uh, as far as publications the, the last one I I I would like to plug the uh new verbal behavior chapter in the 2020 version of the Cooper, Huron, and Heward book. And in that chapter, I've I've, uh, uh, laid out the concepts of generative learning, talked about bidirectional naming, relational framing, equivalence relations, joint control, tied those all into emerging verbal operants and how that all connects to the existing verbal operants. Uh, It's a much more detailed treatment of the complexities of verbal behavior than I had in the 2007 chapter. So The chapters are very different. Uh, the first one is more of kind of a basic intro uh, to verbal behavior in many ways with classification exercises and so on. And the second chapter is, is more like a verbal behavior level two, or part two, I spend a lot more time dealing with issues from the second part of Skinner's book, Verbal Behavior, than I did in the uh, first version of that chapter. Oh, there's my plug.
0: <laughs> well, congratulations, and I'm excited. Uh, this will be my first cow Abba, so I'll look for you there. Oh, good. Yeah, you know, people say to me, I thought you would have been. You live out in Hawaii, and I'm like, well, <laughs> but I was out in Boston, you know, working on that dissertation in the snow for quite some time, so California yeah. was quite far away. Also, I just, having been at Ohio Abba, Cooper, Heron, and Hubert are there, signing the third edition of the book, and... You know, I got to say, it's in the hands of at least 400 (laughs) new people. Well, good, (laughs) good. Thank you again, Mark, for joining us today. Um, I really appreciate uh, all your information, your knowledge, your contribution, the conversation, and your time. And just want to let everyone know that if you're interested in learning more about these topics and behavior analysis, you can do so by visiting www.behaviorbabe.com.